Well, we are going to do something a little bit differently this morning as far as our uh, time frame for how we order our morning. Normally we sing uh, significantly more songs and then we study God's Word together and then we respond with one or two songs. What I wanted to do this morning was sing a couple on the front end and then respond in song uh, appropriately after we study our passage this morning. And I also want to take a break from our study in the book of Revelation to, to go to the Psalms this morning uh, to consider Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up uh, here on Thursday, and I want us to, to consider what we should be most thankful for. Uh, we've all had the experience. If you haven't uh, had it literally in front of you with your own children, you've heard of it, or maybe you yourself did it uh, on Christmas when the presents are given to the kids and uh, all the expectation of what's going to be in those presents finally comes to fruition and they open up the presents and they see the toy that's inside the box and they rip the toy out of the box and then they place the toy away and they just start playing with the box and they make the box into whatever toy they want it to be and you just think as a parent, why did I spend money on a toy when I could have gone to Costco and just gotten a cardboard box and given it to them? Merry Christmas with the bow wrapped on it. You're good to go and it didn't cost me anything. We've all had that experience where you see a child enjoying something that you kind of think, that's great, but that's not what you're intended to see. That's not what you're intended to enjoy. That's not my intent for you to enjoy. I believe we do the exact same thing when it comes to Thanksgiving. Uh, We have so much to be thankful for. And sometimes when it comes to Thanksgiving, we give thanks for, as it were, the box that the truest present The greatest gift of all comes in. We give thanks for the box. We kind of set the biggest thing aside and we enjoy just the the container. What are we truly thankful for? What should we be really thankful for? Well, we're going to ask David's help this morning with what we should be most thankful for. And then I believe as we go through it together, we will see how we must appropriately respond given what David has encouraged us with, even in his own life, as we'll see this morning. So Psalm 138, Psalm 138. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Psalm 138, 138. And we will read this together, ask God's blessing on our time and dive in. This is a Psalm of David. And David writes, I will... Give you thanks with all of my heart. I will sing praises to you before all other gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth because you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, because great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the prideful he knows only from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. 
you will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Father, we want to pray these words back to you. We want to start where David begins of praising you and saying we will give you thanks. And we want to end where David ends by continually depending on you. God, don't forsake the work that you're doing in us. And we want to marry those two together in this most holy of moments in our week where we set aside time to hear from you, to listen to you speak to us through your word. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. You could have left us to our own opinions, to our own devices. You could have left us uh, to our own ideals. And yet you spoke into existence your word. You gave us a picture of who you are in written form. And we can cling to it, just as David's clinging to your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, your steadfast love. Father, I pray that you would work in us this day. That by your grace, you would enable us to say what David is about to say in this psalm. May David instruct us this morning, but more importantly, the author behind David, your spirit instruct us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. We want to be those who are lowly, as this text talks about, so that you would exalt us, you would see us, you would help us. God, we ask for your divine assistance now. And Father, I pray that by the time we're done with our service together, as we meditate on this psalm, as we respond in song to you, that we would walk away giving thanks for what is most important. Not what we want, not what we desire or hope, but what is most important in our lives. God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In this psalm, Psalm 138, we have three different aspects of David's own thanksgiving. A psalm is a, a song of praise to God, and here you can clearly see that David is praising the Lord, and he's praising the Lord for three aspects of his divine grace. So we'll split it up into three sections. David is thankful for God's sustaining grace. David is thankful for God's supporting grace, and David is thankful for God's securing grace. So let's look at the first one. David is thankful for God's sustaining grace. This is verses 1 through Three, David begins by saying, I will give you thanks. I will. This is a volitional choice. I'm going to do this. Nothing's going to stop me from doing this. I'm going to act. I'm going to give you praise. And I'm going to give you thanks. He's speaking directly to God personally, not using I'm going to give thanks to God, but speaking directly to him. He is a personal Lord. I'm giving thanks to you. And I'm going to give you thanks with all of my heart, not half-hearted worship, not wondering worship. I'm going to give you a little bit of praise for things that you've done, but I'm also going to hold some of it back because I'm not sure how you're going to work. No, I'm going to give you all praise. And as you could see as we read through it, David is in the midst of troubles and difficult circumstances, but he doesn't start there with, God, can you help me? There are other psalms where he does that. But here he begins by saying, before we talk about any problems, any troubles, any circumstances that are difficult, before we get into any of that, God, I just want to praise you. 
I want to praise you. He begins with singing, not asking God questions. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, praising and singing are our armor against idolatry, our comfort under the depression caused by circumstances, and our weapon for defending the gospel. Faith, when displayed in cheerful courage, has about it a sacred contagion. Others learn to believe in the Most High when they see His servant singing. And no more appropriate than in the midst of trials and suffering to sing, to say, God, in the midst of it, it's okay, I'm going to sing. And this song is very intense. It's a passionate song, he says, with all of my heart. But it's also a defiant song. He's defiant in his singing. You can see there in the middle of verse 1, I will sing praises to you before the gods, lowercase g, before the other gods, before the other idols that are out there, before all the nations and their supposed gods that are not truly gods. I'm going to sing in front of them to say, you don't have any power. You don't have any capability to ask or to do what I'm asking my God to do. You are not a god. This is just good old-fashioned Old Testament trash-talking right in front of them. Uh, If you guys come over to my house, which you're all more than welcome to do uh, after church today, we might have a football game on as we eat and hang out and talk, and maybe during one of the football games, there will be a penalty for taunting, for unsportsmanlike conduct and taunting somebody else. Uh, There would be a flag that would be thrown to say, you're not allowed to do that. You'd be frowned upon, maybe kicked out of the game. That doesn't happen here. There's no flag on this play. There's no penalty here. You are absolutely allowed to taunt these false gods. And he does it not only in a defiant way, but in a humbly defiant way. You can see verse 2, but he's still bowing down. He's bowing down towards God's holy temple. So he's defiant, but he's humble in his defiance against false religion. He worships in God's temple. He worships God the way that God demands to be worshipped. He doesn't worship God however he wants to worship. A lot of people say this today. Oh, I I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be involved in fellowship with other believers. I I believe in God and I worship God the way I want to worship God. That wasn't possible back then. That's not possible today. You cannot worship God however you want to worship God. Well, you can, but you'd be wrong. You must, if you want to worship God correctly, you must worship him the way he demands to be worshipped. And so here, David says, I'm going to align myself towards your holy temple. I'm going to bow down, worshiping you the way that you have demanded to be worshipped. Now, why is he worshiping God? You can see he's going to give thanks, middle of verse 2, to your name because of your loving kindness and, my Bible says, your truth. Some of your Bibles might say your faithfulness. Some of your Bibles might uh, say uh, your steadfast love. Uh, He says, I'm going to give thanks for two specific attributes of our God. His loving kindness, and if I could put it in my own words, his trustworthiness. My Bible says truth because what he says will always come to pass. That's why some translations say he's faithful because what he says is going to come to pass. And so I just use the word trustworthy, his trustworthiness. You can trust him. And then David gives us an example of that. Because, that word for, as we've looked in our Sunday school with observing the text and connection words like that, because... You have magnified your word according to all your name. So your name demands to be worshipped. It's holy, it's revered, and you have said that you are trustworthy. That's your name. You are trustworthy. Who you are in your character is faithful and trustworthy. And the question is, will you do what your name says that you will do? 
And he says, you've magnified your word according to your name. What you are intrinsically in your character and who you tell us that you are, God, you've also lived it out in front of us by taking care of us. These two attributes, there's just nothing greater to cling to in the midst of our trials and suffering than these two attributes. God's loving kindness, his faithful covenant-keeping love. It's that love that we looked at in the book of Ruth, that loyal love, that hesed love, that love that will never give up, that love without any exit strategy. And then his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Jim Boyce says it this way, Surely there are not greater qualities of God than these. When the people of God, where the people of God are concerned. All, listen to this, all of God's thoughts and all of his actions toward us flow from his love and persist because of his faithfulness. Every single thought of God and action of God flow from his love toward us and persist in faithfulness toward us. We can cling to his loving kindness and his trustworthiness. But verse 3 gives us the occasion for all of this praise. He is just heaping praise upon God. Thank you, praising God defiantly in front of the other gods that aren't true gods, and praising God for his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Verse 3 gives us the occasion. On the day that I called, you answered. So he's praising God for answered prayer. God, I prayed, I asked you for something, and you answered me, and I want to thank you and praise you for who you are and for what you've done. But that begs the question, what was the issue that David was asking God's help for, and how did God answer? I don't know what trial you're going through right now. If you're alive and you're breathing, then you're going either through a trial, you just got out of one, or you're about to go into one. This is the lot of the human life, right? As sparks fly upward, Job says, so too man is born for the day of trouble. We will have trouble in this life. Jesus promised it. And when you're in those trials, what are we usually asking God for? Get rid of the trial. Give me relief from the trial. Get rid of whatever the oppression is, whatever the suffering is, whatever the problem is, God, get rid of it. David says, on the day that I called to you, you answered me. And we would think, this is great. David said, help me, get me out. And God said, yes, I'll get you out. And he took away the oppression. He took away the suffering. He took away the trial. But that's not what David says. On the day that I called, you answered me, and here's the answer to his prayer. The answer that God gave was, you made me bold with strength in my soul. David's answer to, or God's answer to the prayer that David had prayed was strength given to him in the midst of the trial, not divine intervention to take him out of the trial. Maybe David prayed, God, would you please get me out of this trial. And God said, no. David said, will you help me? And God said, I can do that, and I'm going to help you by giving you strength. David here is most thankful, not that the circumstances have changed. He's most thankful that God has given him sustaining grace in the midst of the trial. Circumstances didn't need to change in David's mind. The person in the circumstances needed to change. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation when you are begging God to take the suffering away, to take the problem away, and God says, no, no, no. And you're wondering, God, why? What are you doing? When are you going to release me and give me relief in these moments? 
And then God gives you strength, a peace that surpasses all understanding. God gives you something internally that undergirds every motive you have, every thought you have, every action and every attitude, and it enables you to be strong and to persevere in the midst of the circumstance. We've, we've been studying the book of Esther. We studied the book of Ruth. We would have loved in those books, probably like Esther and Ruth would have loved, for God to divinely speak into that moment and miraculously work in amazing ways. But in mundane moments and just giving miraculous strength to the individual, God sustains them through the trial. There's an amazing book um, called The Scars That Have Shaped Me by a woman named Vanitha Reisner. Just listen to a little bit of her biography. She had 21 surgeries by the age of 13. She has spent a cumulative number of years in the hospital. She was verbally and physically bullied from schoolmates in uh, junior high and high school. She has had multiple miscarriages as a young wife. She experienced the death of one of her children. She had a debilitating, she still has a debilitating progressive disease. She's in pain constantly. Ultimately, she was abandoned by her first husband uh, in an unwanted divorce. She's been through so much, and in all of it, she cried out, God, help me, deliver me. But she says, God offered me something better than deliverance. He gave me sustaining grace. Here's what she said. In delivering grace, we see God's glory. Everyone can see the miracle that he has wrought for us, and usually our lives are easier as a result. We have, we have what we have asked for, and we thank God for it. Sustaining grace also showcases God's glory, but with sustaining grace, people can see the miracle that God has wrought in us. Our lives are easier only because our perspective is different. With sustaining grace, we must continually go back to God. This grace is not a one-time thing, just as man was not a one-time event. We need it every day, and it keeps us dependent on God. So when I am sustained and I'm not delivered, God is inviting me to see the miracle that I have received. It is a more precious answer to prayer than I could ever have realized. David is appreciative of that miracle in this psalm. Not that I was delivered, but that you in your grace sustained me in the trial. Charles Spurgeon says, If the burden was not removed, yet strength was given wherewith to bear it, this for David is an equally effective method of help. That's a hard sentence. If the trial's not removed, but I'm given grace to stay in the trial, for David, that's equally effective. For me, those two do not equal. Get the trial away. I don't want it anymore. But David says, no, they're equally effective. I'm okay. Spurgeon continues, it may not be best for us that the trial should come to an end. It may be far more to our advantage than by its pressure we should learn patience. And then he says this, sweet are the uses of adversity, and our prudent Father in heaven will not deprive us of those benefits. Adversity has sweet effects, and our good Father will not deprive us 
of those blessings. That changes the way you think about suffering, right? Instead of God being a mean God because he's allowing suffering, God's actually a gracious God because he's allowing you to experience something that will change you, will make you more like Christ, and he will not deprive us of those benefits. So David says, you made me bold with strength. You gave me strength in my core, to the core of my being, in my soul. You gave me strength. And brothers and sisters, what God strengthens by his grace no one and nothing can weaken. So David says, this is what I have, this is what I need, and I'm most thankful for that. David is thankful, number one, for sustaining grace. Number two, David is thankful for supporting grace. David is thankful for supporting grace. This is verses four through six. Not only is he sustained by God's grace, but he is supported by God's grace. Verse four, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. All of the kings of the earth, they're going to give thanks to you. They're going to bow down. Ultimately, all kings will bow down before God. We talked a little bit about this in our study in Esther, where uh, Haman ultimately was bowing down before Esther. He was made to do so uh, before he was killed. But David is thinking even a, a little bit more optimistically here. They're going to bow down. Why? Because they've heard the words of your mouth and they're going to sing, verse 5, of the ways of the Lord because great is the glory of the Lord. So he's going, David is going to his task of evangelism with full assurance of success. He knows God's glory is going to be seen and savored by other people as we sing about his glory and they see it. What a beautiful assembly, all of the kings of the earth. What a beautiful purpose David has to have them gather to hear God's word. And David, the preacher himself, encourages them all to lift up their voices. And if David had that assurance of evangelism being effective, we all the more have reason when Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. He will build his church. As we've been studying in Family Bible Hour with those specks, right, one of those uh, aspects of the P there, promises. We're looking for promises when we read God's word. There's a promise that you can take home to the bank, money back guarantee. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's doing the building, not us. And he said the gates of hell are ineffective to stop us. Gates, they're a defense mechanism, right? We are on the offensive. We are attacking the gates of hell and they can't hold up against us. So, David says, all the kings of the earth are going to know about you, sing about you. He's optimistic in his evangelism. And then he says this in verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, though he is high and lifted up, he regards the lowly. He sees the lowly. He notices the lowly. He's far from them because he's exalted and they're so low, but he's so near to them because he knows them and he regards them. And in fact, the opposite is true, right? But the haughty he knows from afar, those who are prideful, even though they're trying to get up there with God and, and very prideful and, and exalt themselves, God says, no, you're not close to me. And he doesn't regard them at all. He doesn't even know them. Because the lowly think little of themselves, God thinks much of them. Charles Spurgeon says, proud men boast loudly of their culture and their freedom of thought. 
and they even dare to criticize their maker and creator. But he knows them only from afar, and he will keep them at arm's length in this life and then shut them up in hell in the next. God's glory is not seen only in his rule over all things, but the fact that in ruling over all things, he cares for the lowly. You want to get God's attention? You want to get God to notice you? This verse says that he regards humble people. And God's supporting grace for those who are humble should be what we cling to. Instead of saying, I've got this, I can do this on my own. No, stay humble, stay lowly. We talked about it again on on Wednesday night in our Bible study. God's plan A for all of us is humble yourself. But if you do not do that, he has a plan B, and it is, I will humiliate you. You either humble yourself, or I'm going to humiliate you. And we see that perfectly in the person of Haman. He exalts himself, he exalts himself, he exalts himself, and God says, if you will not bow, I will humiliate you, so that I'm making you bow in front of the queen that you want to kill. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning as well. So David says, in my lowliness... I'm thankful that you notice me. You support me in your grace. So he's thankful, number one, for sustaining grace. He's thankful, number two, for supporting grace. And finally, number three, verses seven through eight, he's thankful for securing grace. He's thankful for securing grace. Verse seven, though I walk in the midst of trouble, I can make it out on my own. Is that what he says? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, I can preserve my own life. No, he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you alone can revive me. You alone can strengthen me. You alone are my help. This is the humility that he's talking about. I'm I'm still lowly before you. I'm still in the midst of trials. I'm still in the midst of difficulty, and therefore I'm not going to ask of myself to get out of this. I'm going to ask of God to get me out of this. Ultimately, we cannot know what God desires of us if we are not humble. And so he says, I I would like these things to be taken away, but God, I'm asking right now that you be my help and revive me. Give me that strength in my soul again, and I know you're going to do it. He says, you will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand will save me. The humble person is constantly praying in utter dependence upon the Lord. Please help, please help. And you alone can do the saving. Again, the trial isn't removed. In verse 7, he's not saying, there's no more trouble in my life. He says, I am walking in the midst of trouble. I'm still there. David's troubles are not over. His enemies are still there. And David is totally okay with that. Fine by me, as long as I've got God. Spurgeon says, how often has the Lord quickened us by our sorrows? Are they not his readiest means of exciting to the fullest of energy the holy life which dwells within us? If we receive reviving, we need not regret affliction, because when God revives us, trouble around us can never harm us. Again, he's most thankful not for God taking away the trouble, but strengthening him inside of the trouble. David, in fact, anticipates more trouble happening, and we should too, right? This is the forecast of the Christian life. We know trouble's coming. 
But through it all, David is confident that the Lord will accomplish all of his purposes. And that's why he says in verse 8, the Lord will. This is another money-back guarantee. The Lord will accomplish. My Bible says, what concerns me? Better translation is all of his purposes for me. Every purpose that God has for me, those will come to pass and nothing can thwart it. Not the enemies that are in this chapter, not the false gods that are in this chapter. Nothing can thwart God's purposes for us. David Livingston said, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. Nobody can kill me until God's will for me is accomplished. And we can live with this bold confidence in the sovereignty of God over our lives. Regardless of what is taking place in our lives, we can give thanks for this. And yet at this moment, perhaps you hear these words and you think, well, it's okay for David to say all of the purposes will still come to pass, but in my life, I've derailed those purposes. I've forfeited those purposes because of my sin. I have messed up in some way and I've gone off the tracks and there's no way that God's purpose for me can be accomplished because I messed it up. Maybe you're staring inward and you're looking at your sin and you're thinking, whatever God's purpose was for me, I've ruined it. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that the man who is saying all of God's purposes will be accomplished in my life, money back guarantee, is the same man who wrote Psalm 51. After sleeping with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, committing adultery and killing Uriah, this is the same man. And he says, no enemy can thwart your plans, no false God can thwart your plans, and not even my own self can thwart your plans. Our hope for God finally working out his purposes and plans through us and in us is not because of our abilities. It's because of God's perseverance at work in our lives. So are you confident that the Lord will fulfill his purpose in you and through you? Are you confident the way David's confident? I know this is going to happen. How can we be confident? He anchors it in verse 8 because of God's loving kindness being everlasting. Your loving kindness is everlasting, O Lord. Therefore, I know because you love me and it's everlasting and that will never change that you're going to work out the purposes God has for us. How do you think about your life in terms of the purpose God has for you? God has a purpose for you. There are some people that would say no. There are some people that say life is meaningless and purposeless. This is uh, existential nihilism, if you want to use the philosophical term saying all of life is meaningless, it's purposeless, there's no meaning to it. Uh, one of the most famous proponents of this is uh, Nietzsche, right? You guys know Nietzsche, that God is dead, nothing matters. Uh, I don't know if you know how he ended his life, but he spent 11 years in a vegetative state in a bed because that's where living that philosophy out leads you to, right? He thought if you can, as a human, get beyond the fact that there's no purpose, there's no meaning, if you can ascend to a higher level of consciousness above the meaninglessness of this life, you can become, because he's Polish-German, you can become an ubermensch, which means just Superman, right? You can become the, the biggest uh, Superman in all of life and own everything. And he tried it, and he spent 11 years slowly dying in a hospital bed. He went crazy because he thought there's no purpose to anything. 
Now, I think sometimes as believers, we say, oh, of course, there's a purpose to everything. And we make it very, very big. We say, God being glorified. And yes, God is going to be glorified in your life. But there's also a specific purpose that God has for you. There is a specific purpose that David is confident that purpose will not fail. There's always a purpose. Say, well, what is God's purpose for my life? Well, I don't know all of the very, very specific things, but I know three things that for sure God's purposes are for you. Number one, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God's purpose is that you would be saved. He desires no one to perish, but all to repent and place their trust in Christ. That's God's purpose for you. You are called to repent and turn and trust in, in Jesus Christ. And until you've done that, then your life has only the purpose over it of showcasing God's judgment for sin. So if you do not know without a shadow of a doubt that you are genuinely saved, today is the day to hear the purpose that God has over your life. God's purpose for you is to be saved. It's to bow the knee to him now on your own instead of bowing the knee to him later when he forces you to and then sends you to eternal punishment. So turn now. Number two, if you do turn, God's second purpose for all of us is that we would grow in him. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God for you. There are secret hidden wills of God, and then there's explicit reveal, revealed wills that God has for us. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 is one of them. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. God wants you to grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness. God wants you to kill sin and grow in a love for Christ and in a love for obedience. This isn't perfection. This is progression. This is growth. But do you see, as you look back on your life, do you see there was a lot more immaturity and foolishness in the external big ways, and God's growing those things, and you are daily working out practices in your life that you can kill sin, you can kill pride, you can kill greed, envy, jealousy, lust, whatever it might be. God's will is that you be saved and then sanctified. Number three, God's will for you is that you make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, the end, the great commission, right? Go, therefore, because God has all authority and you've surrendered under his authority, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So saved, sanctified, and then sent. Go and make disciples. Now, in the midst of that, who do you marry? What school do you go to? What job do you go to? I don't know, and I'd love to sit down with all of you to, to talk through those things, to hear what your passions are, to hear what you love. If you truly are saved and you're spirit-filled and you're sanctified and you've got God's word uh, in your heart, scripture saturated in your heart, and as Augustine said, you can do whatever you want because your desires will be God's desires in your life. So look at your giftings, look at your physical abilities, look at your leadership abilities, look at uh, what your passions are. Look at what others say about you that maybe you're gifted in or maybe you're good at or maybe God has enabled you to do something that really brings him glory. And Do that. I think some of you should become 
pastors. Some of you should become missionaries. Some of you should become uh, full-time, as it were, involved in ministry to the church. And some of you should not do that in a full-time capacity, but do that in a full-time capacity outside of the church. And some of you are doing that. Many of you are doing that. Teachers in public school areas, uh, musicians who work with other people to share Christ with them. There, there are so many different people that we have in our church that represent a living out of these purposes. But the bottom line is, there is no one in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ that needs to fear that God's purpose for your life is not going to happen. He's going to work it out. He's going to make it happen. And we know that in that beautiful chain in in Romans chapter 8, right? We know that. In fact, go there just really quickly. Go to Romans 8. You know chapter 8, verse 28. We know... Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he has a purpose for us. We're called according to that purpose. And we know this is going to happen because, verse 29, it's cemented in God's redemptive purposes in us and through us and for us. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And we know it's going to happen. These whom he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he justified. And those he justified, he's also glorified. It's it's as good as done. So he speaks of our glorification that hasn't happened yet in the past tense. Say, okay, great. But that's that grand scale. God's purpose and glorifying himself in me, that's that grand. What about the, the purposes in these specific moments in life? What do we do with these things? Go back to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness because we don't know how we should pray. We don't know what we should pray for. We don't know how we should pray. We are seeking the will of God in our lives and we don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. This is the third time Paul has referred to groaning in chapter 8. The creation groans, for the day of ultimate redemption when God will make a new heavens and new earth. We groan for that day too, and then here the Spirit groans uh, in our place for us with groanings that are too deep for words. He's praying for us. And, verse 27, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a beautiful verse that says, as we look in in our lives, as we look in our weakness, we look at what what is the will of God for me? We don't know how we should be praying. But there is one whose perfect will in our life is going to be accomplished, who not only knows what that will is, but is praying for it and is working it out. We're not figuring out God's will on our own. The Spirit is helping us. That's why he is called the Helper. And he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as you pray, and you say, God, I I desire this, I hope for this. There's so many places in the Bible we could go to. 1 Corinthians uh, 16, Paul says, I I hope and I pray, I want to come to you. uh, But if that door closes, I'm not going to be able to come to you. I'm going to do whatever God's will is. So I want this, and I'm going to go for that. But God, if you close the door, then I know that's not where I should be going. God, open a door somewhere else. It's... Obviously, it's another sermon for another time of finding the will of God, as it were. And again, most of the will of God is clearly revealed explicitly in Scripture. 
But the bottom line that David says I'm so thankful for is the fact that though there's enemies around me and false religion around me, and though I've messed up and I've sinned and I've grieved God's heart, I know his promises and his purposes for me will be accomplished. I know they will be because his everlasting love, his never letting go love, his no exit strategy love is everlasting. That's uh, a great refrain from Psalm 136. You can see it in my Bible. If you just look a couple uh, columns over in Psalm 136, you can see that refrain, his love endures forever. His loving kindness is everlasting. Just refrain after refrain, just a line spoken and then his love endures forever. A line spoken, then his love endures forever. A line spoken, then his love endures forever. This, by the way, informs our whole worship wars controversy. A lot of people will say, we need only hymns and none of this repetitious like movement of we're just continually singing the same line over and over and over again. That's boring. That's not deep. That's somehow not sober. No. Psalm 136, it's just repetitive over and over and over again. His love endures. His love endures. His love endures. His love endures. And David recalls that to mind here by saying, your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. He has unwavering faith in the overriding and overruling sovereignty of God. And no matter what others may say or do, God's eternal purposes will be carried out in his life. He ends the psalm with a prayer. Just as he began, I want to praise God and I want to pray. He ends by saying, God, do not forsake the works of your hands. The the purposes that you're working out in my life, keep those going, God. The promises that you've given to me that you're working out in my life, God, please keep those going. Please keep working in my life, and please help me align myself with your working. I want to follow where you are leading, and I don't want to go against you. Again, only the humble people, uh, all the way back in verse 6, only the humble people will be following God's will because they will dependently pray and ask God, help, help, lead me, guide me. The self-confident, the self-righteous, the self-reliant say, I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. So David ends by saying, I need your help. Please don't forsake your working in my life. So, what are you most thankful for? Maybe you're thankful for God's grace in delivering you from something. And amen and amen. We should praise God for his delivering grace. But maybe you are in the middle of a trial. Maybe you are in the middle of a season of suffering. Maybe this psalm will help you to change your perspective. I'm not looking for delivering grace. I'm looking for sustaining grace. God's not removing the trial, and that's okay, because if I have him, I have everything I need. Go back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and because God is my shepherd and I'm following him, I shall not want, or literally, it's, I, I, don't have, I, I have everything that I need. There's nothing that I need that I'm lacking, because I've got God. Are you most thankful for his sustaining grace? Are you perceptive to his, his sustaining grace in your life, his beautiful, purposeful sustaining grace in your life? Or are you only aware when God removes the trial and gives you relief? Are you most thankful for his supporting grace, that though you are lowly and you exalt in your humility, he sees you? You have nothing to offer him on your own, And yet he says, I see you. The 
poor in spirit, the bankrupt in soul, those are the ones who are blessed. I've got nothing. We should all just turn our pockets outward, as it were, in our souls and say, I've got nothing, God. If you want to do work with me and through me and in me, you've got to do it all on your own because I have nothing to contribute. What are you most thankful for? Is it your ability to walk the path before you or is it the fact that God's promises and purposes in your life will never fail? Ultimately, all of these aspects of God's grace, his sustaining grace, his supporting grace, his securing grace, that his purposes will happen and we're secured in that, Ultimately, all of these aspects of God's grace are seen, savored, and purchased for us at the cross. So in this season of thanksgiving, yes, be thankful for deliverance. Amen. Yes, be thankful that God's given you a path to walk on and that you're doing your best to walk down that with his help. But what I want us to do this morning is I want to strip away all those external realities. I want us to to go inward, to think through our own season of life right now and where God might be saying to you, I'm not delivering you, but I will sustain you. Where God might be saying to you, I know it looks like your life is meaningless, it's purposeless, and you don't know what you're going to do, but God's saying this morning, I have a plan for you and it will never fail. If you humble yourself under his mighty right hand, he will exalt you. So I want us to do that through song, I want us to do that through praying and in a spirit of thanksgiving and humility. Start today and walk through the remainder of this week giving thanks to God for what matters most and not just what instantly, temporally pleases and satisfies. Father, we thank you so much for this psalm and for the ways in which David has encouraged us this morning and challenged us God, we want to be thankful for your sustaining grace, not just deliverance. You are worthy of our praise, not just when you deliver us, but also, and sometimes more importantly, when you in your sovereign goodness say, the trial will remain, but I will give strength to your soul. So God, we want to rehearse these realities through song. We want to think about them, meditate on them in our own lives. And we want to be changed by your Spirit. It is only possible by a work of your Spirit that a supernatural affection would rise in our hearts to say, God, I don't need to be delivered. Just give me sustaining grace. Give me yourself. And I have everything that I need. So God, we call to you now from wherever we are in sorrows deep or joyful mountaintops. We call to you and we want to give thanks now for what matters most. We pray it in the name of Jesus.